Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's get a little bit more insight into the company Slack. And we do that, we bring in Mandeep Singh. Mandeep is Senior Tech Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So we've talked a lot, Mandeep, about the actual process of a direct listing, but I wonder if you can just uh, give us a sense of what this company is really all about and why investors are, you know, kind of, I think, pretty interested in this, IP, in this new offering here. Sure. So Slack is a company that was born on the cloud and it's riding this trend of mobility and shift to cloud. When you think about the technology stack, we are really replatforming from on-premise environments to a cloud-based environment. And Slack is a single product company. What it does is real-time messaging platform, Zoom, if, which went public before Slack, it does you know real-time video communication. So I feel like there is a lot of fragmentation on the cloud now. And what you're seeing is single product companies doing very well because cloud, remember, is a recurring subscription model. So you have tons of visibilities. Once you have a customer, it's very sticky. And I think that's why these companies are getting a lot of premium because there is growth, there is good growth, there is predictable growth, but at the end of the day, I think they're gonna run against a Microsoft or a Google, and that's where you're, you're gonna say, okay, how, how much RAM does this company have? And I feel like they haven't hit that point yet, but it will be very soon. I should note that Bloomberg Beta, the venture capital arm of Bloomberg LP, is an investor in Slack. So that kind of brings up one of the questions, you know, it, it seems like a business that, uh, very, relatively early stages, that is Slack of their growth profile. But you know, we've seen in the past where some of these, you know, cool technologies really uh, hit that, a Microsoft or, or, or Google or an Amazon can just come in and buy them up. Do you think that's a reasonable scenario here for a company like Slack? Sure, so that's a great point. We've seen that beginning to happen now with Salesforce buying Tableau. Right. What it right. tells you is the cloud, the large cloud companies like Salesforce, like Microsoft, even you know you can put ServiceNow in the same bucket, are looking for acquisitions because as a company, you don't want to deal with 50 different vendors. If I have a point product from Slack, point product from Atlassian, point product from Dropbox, that's not gonna help me you know, manage my enterprise systems any easier on the cloud. Yes, cloud is a better model with you know, subscriptions on demand, but at the end of the day, you want to see vendor consolidation. And I think with Slack, their revenue is very, growth is very strong, it's recurring. But at the end of the day, how many customers can they add for that single product? And that's a question that investors want to know. Well, about a month or so ago, it seemed like we were talking to you a lot about Uber um, and Lyft. And one of the problems was, from an investor's perspective, is they weren't profitable. And the path to profitability was very unclear. Is Slack profitable? No, it's not. In fact, they spend a ton of money on uh, customer acquisition costs. Uh, that uh, The sales and marketing expenses are really high. They have operating margins of negative 30%, negative free cash flow margins. The good thing with Slack compared to the ride-sharing guys you alluded to is that they have higher gross margins. Slack has typical uh, you know, 80% plus gross margins. That's typical for any software company. And so the only lever they need to pull is to lower their sales and marketing expenses. And that way they can be operating margin positive. The risk is 
If they do that, then you know they're not going to acquire customers at the same pace, and that's the key to driving revenue growth. Interesting. Is this a, a global story, or is this a U.S. domestic? So they have exposure in Europe. For most of the software companies, especially the cloud ones, they are America and Europe centric. They have very little exposure to China, and so in this case, their 34% of their revenue comes from Europe. Interesting. So it's uh, we'll have to take a look, uh, Mandy. If you're going to stay with us, uh, uh, we're going to see how this stock opens. It hasn't opened yet in the marketplace, um, but uh, it's expected sometime later this afternoon. Um, so we'll have to see how that plays. Coming up, uh, of course, we have Emily Chang of Bloomberg Television. She's uh, sitting down with Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield and the CFO Alan Shim at the New York Stock Exchange to talk about uh, this new offering. To talk about the future uh, of the company. So we'll, that'll be coming up in just moments. But but clearly, in a highly anticipated uh, transaction, not only is it a you know a well-known technology company, high growth, lots of investor interest, but it's also a direct listing uh, way of issuing shares to the public. It is not an IPO; it is a direct listing where secondary shareholders uh, are uh, offering shares in the public marketplace, uh, and uh, buyers are being lined up and they're trying to figure out uh, the right price uh, at which they can open this stock. So we will see that coming. Right now, let's go to Emily Chang of Bloomberg Television. Welcome to our Bloomberg TV and radio audiences. After 2019's bumper crop of IPOs, either languishing or wildly exceeding expectations, Slack is taking a route to the trading fuller it hopes will provide a much more well, boring outcome, a direct listing. As we wait for the stock to start trading on the New York Stock Exchange, I am joined from the trading floor by the company's co-founder and CEO, Stuart Butterfield, and CFO, Alan Shim. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Congratulations, big milestone. We are waiting for first trade. The stock indicated to open 30 to $34 a share, which is higher than your reference price of $26 a share. Stuart, how confident are you in this moment, as you wait there for the stock to start trading, about the process, that the direct listing was the way to go? Um, we'll see, uh, but I think for, <laughs> at this point it has been uh, working exactly the way it was supposed to work. Um, and ultimately, we'll open, we'll have a high and a low today, we'll close, and then the same thing's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and uh, we are very much focused on the long term. Now, you're still paying large fees to bankers. You still raised a lot of money on the private market. So what problem are you really solving, Stuart, by doing a direct listing versus the traditional IPO? Well, uh, the, the first one is that no need to raise primary capital. We came into this process with over $800 million on the balance sheet, so the dilution to existing shareholders would have been tough. I think we did get a little bit more freedom in how we tell the story, so it, in addition to a roadshow, but instead of only having a roadshow in private rooms with the investors, we were able to do an investor day, uh, live stream it, and make the video available to everyone, um, and that, I think, is uh, put us in a better position. Now, Alan, Slack is still unprofitable, and the markets have rewarded profits, even if they're slim profits. How far out is profitability? Well, our primary focus right now is to invest in growth. And as we continue to build on what we think is a new category, that's going to be our focus for a long time. But we've also said to investors that our near-term uh, priority is to drive towards cash flow break-even. We have high confidence in the strong unit economics of our business that we can still invest very aggressively while driving towards that near-term uh, profitability uh, market. So then, Stuart, how much of a priority would you say that profitability actually is? 
I think, uh, I don't want to get too technical about it. In SaaS, there's a lot of deferred revenue, so accounting profitability isn't that much of a priority. As Alan was saying, bringing in more cash than we put out on an ongoing basis is a priority because it allows us to control our own destiny. The ideal for us, though, is that we continually find new ways and new opportunities to invest to further grow the business. So we don't need a lot of free cash flow, but uh, just a little bit. Now, Alan, revenue growth is slowing. What are some new sources of revenue you're expecting to tap? Well, we're very pleased with the revenue growth. I think what you're seeing is also we're making great traction with customers and we've gotten over 95,000 paid customers today. Our enterprise customers are also growing even faster. So we have 645 customers, over 100K in revenue. And I think what you're seeing is we're scaling. So at the base of revenue that we're at now, some of the revenue growth just mathematically will come down. But we're very uh, optimistic about the opportunity. We believe there's a huge new category to be built and invested behind. So we're focused on that. Now, Stuart, we've charted your progress from the very beginning. I went back into our archives. The first interview I did with you was in 2011 when you were CEO of TinySpec wow. and you were making a game called Glitch, yeah. which sort of became Slack. In 2015, Jared Leto crashed our interview. I will never forget that. Um, yeah. Your employees, your users really love the sort of quirkiness of Slack, which is an ethos very much inspired by you. That said, you are becoming a public company, you're going to be doing earnings calls every quarter. How do you manage that transition with public investors holding your feet to the fire? I think uh, both Alan and I have been committed, and this is not a recent thing, but over the course of many years on building the kind of internal controls and systems that would allow us to operate as a public company. Um, so it, um, you know, on the financial business operation side, that began uh, a long time ago, and we've been working with the whole company to kind of transition in the n limited number of ways that we do. I mean, the. We believe we can keep the same culture. We can believe we can uh, keep the same approach to serving customers. If you think about our mission to make people's working life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive, there's uh, a nice humility to it because we do want to be of service. But there's also a huge ambition, and uh, I think the the challenge for us, or you know, like a kind of a, what we're going to have to pull off, is bringing investors along on that ride and, and help them understand what the long-term vision is and what we can truly do uh, to support companies all over the world. Now, you're entering a volatile market. We're in the midst of a trade war with China. You could imagine in an economic downturn that businesses are going to cut budgets. They might not cut email. They might not cut Microsoft Office. They might cut the nice-to-haves, and they might think that Slack falls into that category. Stuart, how big a risk is that? I don't see any real risk in that. We have exceptional retention, so industry leading on both the enterprise side and the SMB side. Um, our customers tell us Slack is the kind of thing that they didn't know they needed, but once they have it, they can't live without it. And if you can't live without something, it's not going to be one of the, the items that are cut on a discretionary basis. So, Alan, would you say, you know, how much do these market fluctuations, how much are you following what's happening in the global economy? <laughs> well, we, we watch it like anybody right else, here. but it doesn't necessarily affect the way we run our business. We're building a new category. We have so many things to focus on supporting our customers and building this ambition of a new way of working. So we control what we can control, and the markets do what they need to do. Now, uh, Stuart, analysts say that chat apps are a dime a dozen. You've got huge competitors like Microsoft, like Facebook, with deep pockets and billions of users. Over the longer term, how do you differentiate yourself? How do you compete when even you say in your own risk factors, you haven't figured out the optimal price because it depends often on what your competitors are doing? 
Uh, at Slack, we say we are competitor aware, but customer obsessed. And I don't, it's hard for me to imagine anything that any competitor would do that would uh, cause us to change our plans um, when those plans are all oriented around creating value for our customers. So uh, one of the things we want to do is put ourselves in a position such that Slack, the company, becomes more valuable as the world uses more software, because Slack, the product, becomes more valuable for each of our customers as they use more software because of the platform, because of the integrations. Uh, you know, there's a whole world out there uh, of other software. The number of categories continues to proliferate. The number of dollars that companies invest in software every year continues to go up. So in that kind of market, and in a, in a world where we have 10 million daily active users out of the 200 million plus that we believe would benefit from Slack, it's just wide open. All right, shares now indicated to open 32 to $34 a share, so, so we're getting a little bit higher. This means that you know investors, employees can sell their shares immediately. Alan, should we be worried about a brain drain? Should we be worried about a talent exodus once employees can sell with no lockup? I think employees, like investors, they're appreciating how big of a category and opportunity this is. We estimate this addressable market to be $28 billion, and we're just getting started here. One where a category and a product and a hub that values adoption, user engagement, you know, customer experience, as well as the platform that Stuart alluded to, which we think is going to transform the way people work in the future. Now, Stuart, uh, last quick question for you. You've been very focused on building a diverse team. Slack punches above its weight on women and minorities, though I know even you admit that, that you still have work to do. Unfortunately, other CEOs still don't think diversity is a priority. How has having a diverse team, having more voices in the room, helped you get to this moment, helped you improve the bottom line? Well, I think that uh, there's a bit of an increasing return dynamic. So the, the better job we do, the easier it is to take the, the next step. And so um, there's a lot of early employees, I think, who made really important contributions to the, to the Slack culture, opened it up, um, and brought in people from their network. And that has allowed us to kind of continue, uh, which reduces some of the resistance, because it, it can be very difficult if the company gets too big. So it's something that we're, we're proud of. But you, know, you said we have more work to do. It's uh, that doesn't end. We're part of the larger culture and the larger society, um, and we do what we can. Uh, my hope is that there are a, you know, a group of people who graduate from Slack and go on to start other companies, um, to have careers at other companies, and kind of spread that way of working. All right. Stuart Butterfield, CEO and co-founder of Slack. Alan Shim, the CFO. We're waiting for shares to start trading. Thank you both so much for joining us. Back to you. Emily Chang, thank you so much. That was Emily Chang of Bloomberg Television interviewing Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield and CFO Alan Shim, who were on the uh, New York Stock Exchange floor as the stock uh, opens begins to open for trading at some point later this uh, this morning. Uh, we still have Mandeep Singh with us. Mandeep is the senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Mandeep, one of the things I thought was interesting was uh, the, the discussion around competition. Um, the question, I guess, is there are some big competitors in the marketplace. How do you think Slack is positioned in that space? Sure. So I think when I look at, you know, the competitive landscape, obviously Microsoft is the biggest one for Slack and Microsoft is still a hybrid company. It's, you know, it's got a huge legacy on-premise customer base and it's got a lot of new cloud offerings. I think what they're trying to do, what Microsoft specifically is trying to do is to build their Teams product, which competes with Slack. And Slack will have a tough time displacing a Microsoft when it comes to you know large enterprises. So uh, I think Stuart alluded to it that they're gonna keep spending on you know acquiring new customers. That seems to be the path to sustain revenue growth here. 
I would have wanted to, you know, hear more around product expansion and how they want to move into different areas of software versus just focusing on chats because there are a lot of chat companies out there and it's hard to, you know, uh, sustain your revenue growth just when you're a single product company. Yeah, the, the other thing I heard there, which kind of concerned me a little bit is the discussion about profitability. This is, you know, this the standard line from a lot of these technology companies that they're gonna continue to invest uh, in growth. And I think what we saw again, from Uber and Lyft is uh, investors are all for the top line, but they at least have to have some a path to profitability, a vision of how a company can get to profitability. And arguably Uber and Lyft have not made that clear to investors. Do you think investors are gonna give this company a pass on this, don't worry about the profits right now story? I think as long as they maintain the top line growth of over 50%, that's the key here because the overall cloud market is still growing over 20%. And we are talking about, you know, 150 billion plus market growing at 20%. This is a company with $400 million in revenue. It has to, you know, grow at least 50%. As long as they maintain that top line growth, it should be okay. But I think where they're gonna struggle is we have got good comps for Slack. You have a company like Atlassian that is operating margin positive. You have a company like uh, DocuSign that is operating margin positive. Box and Dropbox are trading at much lower multiples than Slack is. So I think th there will be a real challenge for Slack to make sure investors are able to you know, ride in that growth story without them yep. having a clear path to profitability. Mandeep Singh, thank you so much. I'm Mandeep, Senior Tech Analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining me here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Trade back on the front burner. And I guess despite some dovish comments by President Trump yesterday about trade, tensions remain high, uh, concerns about what the impact will be on corporate America. Now we're actually starting to see some of the leading corporations in America kind of voicing their concerns uh, to the appropriate folks in Washington. So to get a sense of what's going on there, we welcome uh, Sarah Halzak. She's a retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, usually based in D.C., but joining us today in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. So we think about some of these big companies, big brands. How are they trying to get their story about to the Washington regulators about what could really impact their business if these tariffs do in fact go through? So, so far, they're using a pretty traditional playbook. They're using their trade groups in Washington, like the National Retail Federation. They're writing sternly worded letters to the president that are signed by coalitions of big name retailers. Um, and this week, what we're seeing is that they are testifying at hearings for the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, trying to make their case in that format. And I'm sort of wondering if it's time for them to go off script here and try something different, if it's time for these really high profile consumer brands to get out there in a more individual way and make their case directly to consumers that these tariffs are not a good policy idea. Because what we've not seen, I don't believe, is the, you know, what we used to see in years past, sometime maybe it would be a you know, full page ad in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or television ads or, you know, a, a social media campaign. 
we haven't really seen that yet, have we? That's exactly right. And I think that we should. Imagine the power of Nike. We all know its marketing prowess. Imagine if they put together a TV commercial sort of outlaying how this affects them and their consumers. Imagine if you walked into a retailer like Old Navy and they had a sign up saying, this $10 t-shirt will be $15 in November if this tariff policy is enacted. I think that there's a fear out there that President Trump's brand is so powerful that nobody wants to sort of uh, go toe to toe with him. But at the end of the day, these retailers ought to remember their brands are really powerful too. They serve millions of customers every day who have a real loyalty to them and that they should play on that and try to get out there, get on the Today Show, uh, make their case directly to consumers. Is there a sense that, gee, if one or two big brands like a Nike or something like that does it first, then others will follow? I think that could certainly help. And I just think that retailers have to remember that uh, I, I think that we've just sort of seen Trump has a willingness to put them in the center of all sorts of issues that don't even relate to trade at this point. We saw that most clearly with his threats on Mexico, right? That he, that we, right. That's been averted temporarily, but that he was going to put tariffs on all goods coming in from Mexico to get his way on immigration. And so I think whatever risk they see out there in speaking up on this issue, the risk to being put in the center of another one of these entanglements, I think for them is far worse. Right. And have you have we seen anybody kind of maybe just do a little bit more? Have we seen anybody do anything on this front? Um, or do you think maybe they're just waiting to see what happens down the road, maybe the G20 or something like that? No, I, I think we've seen, you know, comments here and there on earnings calls like Walmart just kept repeating yep. something along the lines of uh, there's no question that increased taxes result in increased prices, but they weren't saying any specific anything specific. And I think that's where it would really make a difference, right? If consumers could hear on this particular item that I put in my pantry every week or on this particular item, I know I'm going to need to buy for my kids back to school shopping. I'm going to see higher prices. I think that could go a long way towards getting people riled up. Um, and we're just not seeing action there. I think the other thing to remember is that I have covered so many of these collisions of retail and politics over the years, going back to Chipotle saying, we don't want people to bring guns into our stores, going back to Walmart's uh, saying, urging its governor in Arkansas to veto a religious freedom bill. Um, and none of this has long-term impact on any of these retailers. I think we just live in a moment where politics and business are colliding more, and they should speak up on the stuff that matters to them. This is fascinating. We'll have to see how that plays out, because clearly the impact on uh, retailers and big consumer companies could, in fact, be substantial. Some of these uh, tariffs do go through and uh, likely, very likely could impact uh, their businesses. Sarah Halzak, thanks so much for joining us in studio. We appreciate it. Sarah's a retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Well, equity markets are certainly applauding the Fed's statement yesterday of likely easing later this year. To get a sense of where we go from here, we welcome Barry Knapp. Barry is a managing partner for Ironside's Macroeconomics based in Westwood, New Jersey, but now Vail, Colorado. Lucky Barry. Barry, thanks so much for joining us. Just wonder if you can give us kind of your takeaways from what we heard from Chairman Powell yesterday. Sure. Um, well, they seem uh, absolutely committed to uh, trying to resolve at least the low inflation that's so persistent in the economy. Um, I, I think it's an exercise in futility, quite frankly. Uh, we've done a lot of work on the correlation of the components of CPI to convince ourselves that really what's causing the, the low inflation is um, 
innovation adoption in the service sector and global excess capacity in goods, even in energy, um, shale has fundamentally changed the elasticity of supply and likely dampened volatility in energy prices over time. So all these things are out of the purview of the Fed, but none, nonetheless, they seem absolutely convinced that um, uh, you know they've got to try and ease policy to to boost inflation back towards two percent. Now, I'm trying to avoid falling into the trap of sounding like a bit of a shrill and saying, well, this is going to cause um, you know impair creative destruction and cause asset bubbles and all. Both those things are certainly true in the long run, but in the near term. I don't think there's a heck of a lot of risk to them easing from this point. And so I'm a, I'm a bit indifferent to the whole thing. Obviously, investors in the near term cheered it, though we're, we're well off our highs. Um, but um, I, I think on balance, to really understand what's going on with the Fed and what happened last year, I think you need to step back from conventional rate policy and think about just the, the demand for bonds from the three major developed world central banks. The ECB, BOJ, and Fed bought $2 trillion worth of bonds in 2017. In 2018, they bought zero. And that really accelerated around the September-October timeframe when the ECB cut their purchases in half. Fed reached their maximum caps for balance sheet runoff. The BOJ had altered their yield curve control program a bit. And there was a provision in the tax bill that ended that allowed companies to contribute to their pension plan at the old 35% rate. So really what you had was a liquidity shock going from $2 trillion of demand to zero in demand. And that's what caused what we've been calling the QT you know, stock market crash in the fourth quarter. It wasn't that rates got too tight. There was no part of the economy really that exhibited um, signs that that policy was tight. Even the housing market, we thought the slowdown last year was attributable to the state and local tax deduction elimination, not higher rates so much. So um, on balance, I'm I'm sort of indifferent to Fed policy here. I think what's more important is the improvement in domestic demand and the pick back up in consumption from that QT crash that's been so evident in retail sales, in particular last week's numbers. All right. So if the the Fed is what it is here. It's on the sidelines, at least uh, for the very near term, and then li- likely to ease a little bit later in the year. The other big driver of uh, the market's performance, really, you know, over the last uh, six to nine months, has been global trade tensions, and then it appears that they might be coming to a head here with China. How do you think that plays out, and how should investors kind of be positioned for how you think trade uh, discussions with China might play out? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I thought that last week's numbers from China were really very telling in as much as um, industrial production was weaker than expected, fixed asset investment was weaker than expected, the import component of the trade data was much weaker than expected, and whatever strength there was was in their traditional heavy industry state-owned enterprise sectors, so steel, cement, those sectors, and consumer sectors like auto production was decidedly weak, technology was very weak, so I, we expect that this really strengthened the hands of reformers and led to President Xi being willing to come back to the table and restart negotiations. So we place a fairly high probability that we get a trade detente uh, next week, and that pushes um, any further tariffs down the road, at least till much later this fall. So I, I think on balance, that's the key driver of the recovery and business confidence in the U.S. that's been evidence in capital spending plans 
and um, the National Federation of Small Business Confidence Measures, as well as a pickup in labor market turnover. So that, to us, is the most likely scenario. Now, if the deal falls apart or if there is no trade detente because the stock market defies, um, we're, we're clearly more vulnerable than we than we had been, <clears throat> perhaps even going into you know the May trade tweets. Right. Still, I think that's a low probability, but um, you know that uh, you know that the downside associated with that is even greater now that we're yep. back up at the high. Now that we're back up at the high, Barry Knapp, thanks so much for joining us. Barry's managing partner at Iron Science Macroeconomics, uh, joining us on the phone today from lovely Vail, Colorado. We appreciate uh, his comments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.